You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. I'm Edith. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking with one of the nation's leading scholars in the effort to eliminate racial and ethnic health disparities, Dr. Stephen B. Thomas, Professor of Health Policy and Management and Director of Maryland Center for Health Equity at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Thomas. What an honor to be with you today. We are very excited to have you. Now, before we start, should we call you Dr. Thomas, Dr. T, Stephen? What do you prefer? (laughs) Well, as we get into it, my friends call me Dr. T, and, and your organization is definitely a friend. Awesome. All right. Dr. T, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So before we begin our conversation about today's topic, the history of health disparities, our listeners like to hear a little about the speaker's background. So to give a little more information about yourself, Dr. T, what led you to your profession and field of interest overall? Well, I worked my way through college working in the hospital. Uh, My mother was a nurse and uh, grew up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and there were six of us, three girls and three boys. But I'll never forget that uh, my, my mother as a nurse uh, in her white uniform and white shoes back in the day when nurses looked like nurses. Um, <laughs> I was always intrigued by that, and so I was one of the first wave of cohorts of people trained as respiratory therapists. And when many people were coming into the hospital suffering from chronic obstructive lung disease, So I had a front row seat uh, dealing with a chronic disease and a crisis mode, being there when they did code blues to revive someone, being there when we would have to put an intubation tube in, and unfortunately watching far too many people die. My interest was to pursue medical training, and at some point I realized and said to myself, do I want to spend my entire career at the end of the line? You know, when people are coming in, yes, we can do marvelous things, miraculous things, but their lives were cut so short and the quality of their life so diminished. I had never even really heard of public health, didn't even know what it was. And in 1976, I had an opportunity to take an international trip. It was the first time I've ever been outside the United States, and it was to the People's Republic of China. There were 20 people on the trip. I was the only person of color. I was the only black person on the trip. And when we got to uh, Beijing, uh, the Chinese actually pointed it out. They said, they must have sent you to lead. (laughs) 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 And the reason why that was so interesting is because in China, the revolution was the working man was now on top. They call it bottom rail on top. So they must have sent you to lead is what they said. 
and it, it always stuck with me. Uh, the other thing that stuck with me, I came down for breakfast one morning, and there was a table of about eight or nine black men and one white man. And I was so amazed, given I was the only black person on the trip. I went over to that table, and I said, hey, what's up? And they looked at me like I was from outer space. They only spoke French. They were from a French-speaking country in Africa, and they had a, a white physician that was with them, and they were there in China to be trained, you ready for this, as barefoot doctors. And I was so intrigued by this model in China of bringing health care to people in rural areas, of training lay people, local opinion leaders, and giving them some medical training so that they could provide care in rural areas. And so that idea has stuck with me to this very day. In discovering public health, I finished my undergrad degree at The Ohio State University and then went on uh, and really never stopped uh, through my master's and then PhD, all in uh, public health, community health. And my entire career has been focused on how to translate the evidence of science and the science of medicine, the science of public health, how to translate that into culturally tailored community-based interventions. And today, what that looks like in my world is, believe it or not, uh, mobilizing uh, black barbershops and beauty salons and transforming them into health information portals. And that's because these are places in the African-American community where people literally have a tremendous amount of trust. They're all mom and pop operations, and they've been with us since the 1800s. During the time of slavery, they had been with us. And so to raise the barber's awareness of the history that they play in America, to recognize the role that they play as a trusted venue, and to recognize and tell my health professionals, colleagues, that we need everybody at the table. They may not have degrees like we have, but they have trust and credibility. And I think that's what we've lost uh, in our professional education and training. We come out as professionals, but somewhere along the line, we lose some of our humanity. And I think we have to get that back. It's time to recommit ourselves to some of the core values. It's COVID-19 that now has really raised awareness of the entire American people to what public health is. Many of them have never heard of what an epidemiologist is before, let alone social determinants of health or even the word health disparities. But now that is out of the margins of academia and now in mainstream conversations. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to your audience about health disparities and how we can, in this space of health, in the midst of a global pandemic, that we may well be able to bring our country back together to some of the core values. You mentioned something earlier that stood out to me when you were made aware of your own limitations when you traveled to China, right? And you saw the different people. And I think that speaks to the beauty of exploring and learning and what it allows us to appreciate, you know, so much more of this world once those two things are done. Today's conversation with you will be about the history of health disparities. Now, in order for our listeners to follow the conversation, I think it's important to define the terms that we'll be using, health disparities and health equity. Would you mind defining those two terms for our listeners? I think it's very, very important because now they're hearing those terms in popular media and nobody's really defining them. Now, you know, while some differences in definitions may reflect, you know, stylistic preferences, is it health inequality or health inequity? I mean, all these little subtleties. The key is that 
words convey values and beliefs that can be used to explicitly or implicitly justify and promote particular views, policies, and practices. And so it's noteworthy to me uh, that, again, in the context of COVID-19, where we're kind of re-looking at what do we mean when we say health equity? Health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. Everyone, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of pre-existing conditions, everyone has a just, just means fair opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And that for the purpose of measurement, because I know in your audience you may have some people there who are interested in how do you measure these things, uh, for the purpose of measurement, health equity means reducing and ultimately eliminating disparities in health and its determinants that adversely affect excluded or marginalized groups. So when we talk about health equity, uh, we're focused on those populations in our country that have historically been marginalized or excluded. And while now we're talking about African-Americans, Latinos, Asian, Asian Pacific Islanders, Alaska Natives, uh, Native Americans, these are the recognized racial ethnic minority groups in the United States. They are the protected classes in the United States. When I say protected class, meaning they're protected by the U.S. Constitution. And these protections are in place because these groups have historically been seen as less than. This is why the whole Black Lives Matter matters. It's because historically Black lives have not always mattered. And so one would say if Black Lives Matter, then all lives can matter because finally we're recognizing a group that has historically been left behind. So an effort does not address poverty. If an effort does not address discrimination uh, or the consequences of uh, these damaging issues, people have historically been excluded. If, if you're not focused on them, then it's probably not a health equity effort. So we don't want to use the word health equity when we're talking about the most privileged group in our society. Health equity is about the least of us, the marginalized groups. And in a society such as ours, there should be no reason that someone is kept from achieving the American dream simply because of the color of their skin. And uh, while we may have had disagreements in the past about how to do that, well, do we do that through desegregation? Do we do that through voting rights? Do we do that through desegregating the schools? And who could have imagined that these disparities would exist in our healthcare delivery system since everyone in that system is committed to what? Healing disease and saving lives. Um, the history of racism and discrimination in our healthcare delivery system would be easy to ignore were it not so well documented. And so it was 1985 when Secretary Margaret Heckler released the Secretary's Task Force Report on Black and Minority Health. That was the actual name of the report. And in that report, 15 volumes, the government put in one place the evidence of what they called excess death, that these racial and ethnic minority groups were dying before their time because of their race compared to whites. So let me give you one example. A black woman today is still more likely to have her baby die in the first year of life in mortality. A black woman with a college degree is still more likely to have her baby die 
in the first year of life than a white woman who hasn't graduated from high school. Now, that's a data point. That's simply a fact. The reason why is why you are having this podcast today. Uh, the reason why is complex. Uh, the reason why has to do with the history of racial discrimination in our country. The reason why is that even though that black woman has a college degree, she's still black and she's treated differently uh, in the United States. Even myself with a PhD, I am telling you right now that my wife wants to make sure when I walk out the door, uh, it's almost like a flight check. Do you have your driver's license? Do you have your, as she goes down the list, knowing that just simply being stopped could end up with me not coming home that day. And that was going on before what happened to George Floyd. Now she won't let me out of the house at all. <laughs> I don't blame her. It's a sad reality. Now, in many, in many of these minority communities, you have to understand their distrust of our healthcare delivery system is legitimate. In many black communities, there's an oral tradition where information is passed on from word of mouth. I mean, growing up as a young kid in Columbus, Ohio in the 1950s, we would travel just deep down in the deep south to visit my grandmother. And I remember to this day the signs on the water fountains, white and colored. And uh, being a, a northerner, guess what water fountain we kids wanted to drink out of? We said, is that white water really that different? Um, but the, but the, And those were what we call the Jim Crow rules. At the ice cream shop, blacks around the back or colored around the back or Negroes around the back, no Mexicans. I remember those signs in my lifetime, in my lifetime. Mm. And so our parents had to really kind of chastise us uh, to follow these Jim Crow rules because bad things could happen. And one of those bad things happened to Emmett Till. The story of Emmett Till is when he inadvertently, real or perceived, broke one of those Jim Crow rules and he ends up dead. And it was his mother's decision to have his casket open so that people could see what was done to him when he was beaten and killed that just outraged the nation. Uh, and that was in a Jet Magazine cover. So my point to you is that we still live in our little bubbles. And until we can witness firsthand, it's unfortunate we have to see it firsthand, but until we witness firsthand, we sometimes don't have that action. And now we are find ourselves in the situation where we have the confluence of a global pandemic, an infectious disease, a racial demonstration, police brutality, national conversation about race and racism, and we're all supposed to stay home and social distance, and our cases are going up. So we are at an inflection point, and whatever happens next, we cannot go back. I think that's the lesson. There's no going back. And it reminds me of something that Frederick Douglass said, and I quote here, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. They want the rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters, end quote. And that's what's happening in the streets right now, the awful roar of its many waters. And where we end up will determine what kind of country we're going to be moving forward. 
And I want all of your audience to know, particularly those in your audience who are suffering from a disease, to recognize that their disease should not define who they are and that their disease and access to care should not be inhibited because of their age or because of their zip code. And that they also, if they have the privilege of having access to health care, if they have the privilege of trusting their health care professional, that they should become advocates to ensure that everyone, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of national origins, has that same right. In other words, in this country, it should not be a privilege. It should simply be a right of our citizenship to have access to quality health care. Absolutely. Dr. T, you mentioned earlier in the beginning of this episode, your involvement with uh, barbershops and beauty salons. And this past Tuesday, you were part of a program in which you said, we have to get comfortable with tough conversations. We have to get comfortable with discomfort. You said that the goal is to disagree without being disagreeable. Why do you think those conversations are still so tough to have? Thousands of articles and research papers later, thousands of conversations about race and health disparities. I think you're right in that we're getting better and that we're at a very interesting time where we're being more upfront about the conversation. But why do you think it is that people are still so uncomfortable talking about something that could drastically and dramatically change the lives of so many people for the better? Well, I think it's because we've been in denial. When I grew up, and some of your audience may be in my cohort in the 1950s, when I grew up in the 1950s, young ladies, have you went into an organization or someone said, I don't see color, I'm colorblind. That would be like a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Today, if you say that today, it's like, well, where have you, you know, you're like blind. And so we have denied the issue of race when Barack Obama was elected president. We actually, if you look back at those news reports, we finally have made it. We're now in a post-racial society. I mean, they were literally talking that way. Uh-huh. We are so far from a post-racial society because we have failed to grapple with what has been described as the original sin, and that is the history of slavery and discrimination in this country. Yes, the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, but look at us. Look at us. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were celebrating Juneteenth. Now, most people have probably never even heard of Juneteenth. <laughs> and literally overnight, the chancellor of the University of Maryland says, we're going to celebrate Juneteenth. It's going to be a holiday and let people off starting at 1 o'clock that day. I mean, the snap of a finger, the Confederate statue of Robert E. Lee in a very prominent place of Richmond is coming down. These are the vestiges of institutional racism that still live in our monuments, that still live in some of our language. And unfortunately, that Jim Crow hidden in our healthcare delivery system. And so I think that we have held off the reckoning that comes with addressing the issue of race and racism, and that's why we're now having to deal with it. We will finally have to face the ugly reality of racism in America, and we will finally make a commitment to solve it together, to solve it together. And I think that COVID-19, interestingly enough, is that opportunity because COVID-19 puts us right in the heart of a health issue, puts us right in the center of having to follow science, not myths and misinformation. And the evidence is now clear that taking a science-based approach works. For those states that are opening, 
slowly, like New York and others, it worked. For those states that ignored the call, that did not take COVID seriously, look what's happening there. It's surging. The virus doesn't care. And so now we have to care. And that's why I think this is a tremendous opportunity for transformation. Definitely, I think so. And like you said, COVID-19 is bringing this all to the forefront. And our folks, our patients, our caregivers with cancer, there has been talk and many research studies about health disparities with the cancer population. So this is something that we've been dealing with for a long time and studying. Now that COVID-19 has brought out these health disparities and now that we can actually talk more about the health disparities within even the cancer realm, what can we actually do about these health disparities right now within all of the different diagnoses out there and all of the different health situations that we're dealing with? Well, I think we truly do have to think outside the box Mm -hmm. Uh, Because what we've been doing, even though over time we could see some incremental progress, uh, the fact is when you begin to break out the data, whether it's cancer, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, you'll see that there is a racial difference. There's a gap. And to close that gap, we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. And this is where the barbershop uh, project came to life. I mean, I'm a black man in America. I go to the barbershop. Dr. King used to say that the most (laughs) segregated time in America was on a Sunday because everyone was in church. And in the 1950s, he's probably absolutely right. That that may be less so today. But I would submit to you that the other time uh, that is the most segregated time in America is when we go for our personal care, when you go to get your hair done, uh, when you go to the barbershop or the beauty salon. And so I'm in the barbershop, and somebody walks in who hadn't been in in a while. We'll call him Joe to protect him. And they say, hey, Joe, where you been? Now, when you walk into a black barbershop, You've got five TVs, and they're all on different channels, and you've got music playing, and it's all at the same time, and everybody's talking. So it's a cacophony of what you might think is noise. And so Joe comes in, and uh, when he sits in the chair, he's talking to the barber about how he ended up in the emergency room, and they told him he had a heart attack, and they kept him for three days. And uh, he says uh, to the barber, and and they gave me these pills. He pulled out the pill bottle, and he says, and the doctor told me I have to take these the rest of my life. And at this point, everybody in the barbershop is listening, okay? Music's on, TV's on, but everybody's listening. <laughs> and the barber says, Joe, you know if you take those pills, you won't be able to keep up your obligations. Now, ladies, do I need to explain to you what that means? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a disclaimer on this podcast? (laughs) Well, let let me help you. That barber, in a very subtle way, was saying, you won't be able to perform sexually. Many of these blood pressure medications have a side effect of erectile dysfunction. But what struck me for someone who had entered a hospital system, who was kept for three days, got a diagnosis, got a prescription, was sent home, was that the look on his face, Joe's not taking those pills. Joe is not going to take those pills, and his doctor has no idea there's somebody in the community who doesn't have an MD degree who has that kind of influence. Mm -hmm. I said, what if the barber would have said, hey, Joe, if you're having any side effects, let your doctor know. They can change up the medication. You know, 
Talk about these things. Don't be ashamed. What if that barber was a partner? And in that moment, the idea for hair, health advocates in reach and research kind of was born almost 20 plus years ago. And over that time, I've uh, written grants and tried to raise money to really um, bring the barbershop beauty salon in as a partner in the effort to eliminate health disparities. Two years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine was a major study of cluster randomized trial on hypertension control through black barbershops. It was hugely successful. And in our own work with support from the Cigna Foundation, our focus was on colon cancer. Many of you may know that uh, the national guidelines at one point were age 50, but there were some discrepancies. The uh, gastroenterologist said for African-Americans, it should be age 45 for your colonoscopy. But my point was there's worth a lot of confusion there, and African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by colon cancer. Here's a screening, a colonoscopy that can literally save your life. It can remove a polyp that could become cancerous. What a lifesaver. For many African-Americans uh, with cancer, the unfortunate thing is that they show up when the disease is already too advanced. It is not uncommon for African-American women to be first diagnosed with breast cancer and it's already at stage three or stage four. Many of our therapeutics don't work as well when it's already advanced. And so our barbershop network was put in place to really bring the gastroenterologist into the barbershop. We weren't making these barbers second-class health professionals. We were making them advocates to say, talk to your doctor, follow your doctor's orders, let us help you follow the doctor's orders. And guess what? The gastroenterologist will be here next week to talk about colonoscopies. The pharmacist is going to come, you know, get a brown paper bag and put all the pills of your grandmother or your mother. Many people are caregivers. They have no idea what their parents or loved ones are taking. We're going to bring a pharmacist into the barbershop. In other words, let's meet the people where they are. The miniaturization of diagnostic tools, uh, I'm holding my cell phone right now, this means I no longer need to be tethered to a building, to a hospital, or to a clinic. I can bring advanced diagnostics out into the community, and we believe that black barbershops and beauty salons are a perfect place to establish that network. And so we've been very, very pleased to see our barbers embrace the training, and many of them have themselves gone on to be screened. And uh, while they didn't have colon cancer, some have found out, guess what? I'm at risk for prostate cancer. Guess what? I have diverticulitis. But more importantly, guess what? I like my doctor. I like my doctor. We sent them to practices that had made a commitment to addressing uh, the needs of, uh, of African Americans and other minorities. And so that's how I think we solve the problem. And the other thing is that for many of your cancer patients, that the mere fact that they have a cancer diagnosis is such a bond that you can have a person in their 70s bond with a 15-year-old who has leukemia because that's what they have in common. That same thing happens across race. And I'm hoping that that patient population listening to this podcast says, let me reach out to someone who doesn't look like me, who comes from a different zip code than I come from, and bond around our survivorship bond around um. our living with this cancer, beating this cancer, surviving this cancer, and not let racism get between us. I know that I had always argued, and what you said before probably is saying that my argument is wrong, and I just want to know, but I always argue that socioeconomic status is something that widens the gap between people. 
and what they can and cannot get and in health disparities. And I always thought so more than race or ethnicity. And another thing in America is that we don't like to talk about class. So you said what you just said and you didn't say the word class, but that um, that's underneath it, socioeconomic. But we think in the United States, unlike Europe and other parts of the world, that we don't have class. That It's all about merit. It's all about your bootstraps. It's all about doing the right thing, getting a job, getting an education, and doing the right thing. It's not about class. No matter no matter how poor you grow up in America, you can make it. Isn't that the dream that we send out? Now, in the New York Times today, there's a chart, and it's called America in Black and White, and they lay out the actual data. Now, here's the facts. The evidence of racism and discrimination would be easy to ignore were it not so well documented. And so here again, let's go to the Institute of Medicine. In 1990, the Institute of Medicine released a major report called Addressing Confronting Health Inequities in Healthcare. And what they did in this volume, all of the research were people who had access to healthcare. They had um, insurance. And it described what happened to them once they got into the healthcare system. And one of the studies looked at people with cardiovascular disease. And they had uh, black male and female and white male and female patients as a scenario. They gave them the identical diagnosis, the identical symptoms and checklists, okay, on the chart. And then they ran physicians through this scenario to see what would happen. And here's what they learned that the person who was most likely to be denied appropriate diagnostic follow-up were black women. So if you were a black woman, you were least likely to be uh, recommended for a cardiac catheterization, followed by black men, then white women, and then white men. So there was a gradient. Now you say, well, why would there be a gradient when scientifically and biologically and based on the medical evidence, it was identical? And that's when they concluded the Institute of Medicine is that it was unconscious bias. They did not say that the physicians were outright racist. They said that there was an unconscious bias built into our healthcare system, and that's what we needed to address. And how that was addressed through cultural competence training. Some of you on this call maybe have gone through cultural competence trainings. There is no way that you cannot be impacted by this racial socialization that happens in this country. And so here's the difference, my friend, and that is that the education, the income, does not necessarily prevent you from being marginalized. I can live in any neighborhood I want right now if I can afford it. But interestingly enough, I can predict your life expectancy by your zip code. Because in America today, we are still pretty much racially segregated in terms of where we live. Racial residential segregation is baked into our system. And as a result, we don't see the other. We don't live with the other. You may go to work and see other people of color or diverse people. But when we go home, we're in more homogeneous environments. So I mentioned, you know, a black woman with a college degree is still more likely to have her baby die in a first-year life than a white woman who hasn't graduated from high school. Now we have the socioeconomic and the race together. Now, what some of the theories are that are now uh, being borne out is that even though I have a PhD, 
living in a racist society means that I am constantly under the pressure of what they call hypervigilance. So for some of your audience, uh, they may see a police car and think, oh, I'm so glad my neighborhood's being protected. And for others, they see that police car and their blood pressure goes up because they're afraid they may get stopped. That this is how racism gets under your skin. And the mechanism is stress. So an unrelenting stress, everyday stress, everyday racism wears black people, brown people, people of color down in ways that impact their immune system, in ways that impact their ability to uh, live a healthy lifestyle. And so I'm so glad that racism now is a term I can use in mixed company and that we can talk about. And that's what I want your audience to think about, that it's okay to talk about racism. And even if we disagree on its existence or disagree with what it is, that we can at least have the conversation. Uh, because until we have that conversation and find a common way forward, uh, we will be here again. And I think the death of George Floyd, now think about it. That death took place not in Mississippi, not down south in Alabama. It was Minnesota. And on any ranking, any ranking, the Robert Wood Johnson County Health Rankings, guess what is the number one healthiest, happiest place in the United States? Minnesota. And the governor of Minnesota had to come out and say, yes, we rank number one in the happiest place in the country. We're number one in quality of life, but only if you're white. I thought it was so important that he said that, that black Minnesotans do not experience that same joy, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And so I think that's why this really took off. Most people in the North do not believe they're racist. They did not have Confederate statues in Minnesota. They did not have all these vestiges of racism. And yet it happened there. And George Floyd's death was like a spark in the dry grass of racism in this country. And look what happened. It went not only across the country, it went around the world. The largest demonstration for Black Lives Matter outside of the United States was in Germany. They were marching with Black Lives Matter signs in Australia. This is unbelievable transformative change we're going through right now. Dr. T, an article entitled Health Disparities, The Importance of Culture and Health Communication, written by yourself and two physicians, Dr. Fine and Dr. Ibrahim, it mentions that the root causes of health disparities are numerous and relate to individual behaviors, provider knowledge, attitudes, organization of the healthcare system, and societal cultural values. It goes on to mention that the efforts to eliminate health disparities must be informed by the influence of culture on the attitudes, beliefs, and practices of not only minority populations, but also public health policymakers and the health professionals responsible for the delivery of medical services and public health interventions designed to close the health gap. I think about an interview that Serena Williams did and she could afford any hospital that she wanted to go to. And even in her experience of giving birth, she mentions how the doctors didn't believe what she was saying. She mentions how she was in so much pain that she kind of had to show them that what she was saying was backed up by what she was feeling. And she went on to say that I know for a fact this would not have been the case had I been a white woman because her word would have been taken. And I think that's very important to mention that highlights what you were saying earlier in that you can have all the money in the world, but if you have that unconscious or conscious bias, 
infiltrate the entire situation that can lead to what we've seen, deadly outcomes. Indeed, and Serena Williams is a very good example, and you should know that many of my African-American graduate students, or uh, female graduate students, were just so taken aback. When they hear what we're talking about now, because they all want to have children, they're afraid. They're mm-hmm. so afraid. And so her case, I think, is a very good example of the intersectionality, because when you take off your uniform, be it a tennis player or be it a lawyer, and you put on that hospital gown, guess what? You are stripped of a certain amount of your identity. And even the white patients probably feel a little bit of that, but they simply mm-hmm. have more agency. When that doctor comes in, I mean, he could be your cousin. He could, you know, they feel like there's some connection. But when the person is, you know, a different race, different background, that same human connection may or may not be there. So training of the health professionals is very important. And so, again, when physicians or other health professionals say, I don't see race, I just see the patient chart. I just see, and guess what? That's not enough. Well, here's what we've learned, that if you consciously try to say, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, it's, you ready for this? You're more likely to commit biased errors. You're more likely to commit acts of discrimination by actively pushing out of your mind that race matters. It is by acknowledging that race matters, by acknowledging I've never had a black teacher in my uh, educational career. I've never had a black roommate. I've never lived around black people or Hispanic people or Asian people. By acknowledging that, you're more likely to be sensitive to the unconscious bias, the slights that are taken as forms of discrimination. And so we went through a whole period of trying to be colorblind and thinking that was the value and that was the thing to do, to recognizing, no, we don't want to be blind at all. We want to be inclusive. We want to see the strength of our diversity and be inclusive and learn about other people's lives. And the other lesson for those who thought, well, we'll just grow out of this with future generations, all you got to do is look at what's happening, that you even have young people in the country who are part of that white supremacist activity. But it is the diversity of the demonstrations in the street that gives me so much hope. I'll never forget the sign I saw of a young white kid. The sign he was carrying said, Black Power. (laughs) And it was perfectly okay. I do believe we've made progress. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that it's been too slow and that to think of the police in one community as protectors and to think of the police in another community as a military occupation should not happen in our country. And so we as citizens have to talk about that across uh, those different perspectives. Sure, as well as the health care Alicia is bringing up and you're bringing up the disparity in healthcare. And I think it's important that doctors are also trained about unconscious bias, because if you don't know that there is unconscious bias, then how can you actually help yourself try not to have that type of bias? We have interviewed uh, physicians in the emergency room when they see all of these violent cases coming in and some of the comments that are made are very disparaging. And even though they're healthcare providers, they're under a lot of stress and maybe it's gallows humor or something, but it plays out along racial lines. And I've heard young residents and 
and young medical students say they heard, you know, racist comments from the senior physician trainer. And so if the leader is modeling that, it filters down. I do not think that the so-called mandatory cultural competence training, which many of them do online, like you're taking oh. a quiz, is sufficient. That you know, is how it's I like, feel. Okay, I, <laughs> yeah, I, did, I did my quiz. I know exactly how Latinos work. Oh. And so it is important, but it is insufficient. And this is why we think that my work, bringing health professionals into the barbershop, uh, for yes. many of them, they had never, ever, ever been in a black barbershop. You should see their faces. I mean, we have video of them, and they love it. They love it. They say, I'm finally meeting people who have been trying to get into the hospital. I'm meeting them here. But they're also learning what they don't know. They're learning what they don't know. And unfortunately, the way their education is structured, they only have like, you know, two weeks of what they call social medicine, and then it's all over. So hopefully what we're experiencing right now will uh, change some of that. Do any of you ladies like pancakes? I'm sure your audience out there listening, they love pancakes. What kind of syrup do you use in your house? (laughs) I don't have Aunt Jemima in my house. (laughs) Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben have been set free at last, free at last. God almighty, they're free at last. What your audience may not know is that Aunt Jemima, as a brand, went from a black slave mammy on the syrup to the middle-class black woman you see on your syrup bottle today who looks like she shops at Macy's, but it is nonetheless part of that racial trope. So you have Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, you got Frito Bandito. I mean, now these companies are looking at how they've used racism and racial tropes to sell products, and we have bought those products. We have bought into those products. And now what they're saying is what? You know what? We have to acknowledge we were wrong. We were insensitive, you know. Um, many, many, many years later, we just thought it was done this way. We're going to acknowledge it was wrong. Columbia, here at the University of Maryland, we have a system, the University System of Maryland, and administratively, we have a board of regents that kind of operates the whole system of Maryland. Columbia University, the equivalent of their board of regents, you know what they called it? It was called the board of overseers. And guess what? In this moment that we're in right now, they said, we're changing the name. We're no longer going to be the Board of Overseers. The MBA, they have what they call owners, right? MBA owners. These are very, very wealthy people, the owners. And then you have these teams that are 90% black. Guess what? MBA is dropping the word owners. Subtle. Words matter. Words convey values. Words convey meaning. And so for those African-Americans who just swallowed and just took it as, what are we going to do as they pour their Aunt Jemima syrup? I love Aunt Jemima. <laughs> I'm a little bit sad. I'm going to miss her from the bottle. <laughs> but some of my black friends say, you say, oh, we only have log cabin in our house. So we're now stripping away these hidden forms of racial discrimination, these hidden ways that we always let uh, black people and other minorities know, you know, you're really less than. And I think that's a good thing, but it cannot just be window dressing. It cannot just be I retire, I set free Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, but my board of directors is all male, or my board of directors is 99.9% white. We have to now hold them accountable to real change, structural change, so that we can move our nation forward. Definitely. 
And we also want to thank you for bringing healthcare and health awareness into the community. Because you're right, people trust barbers, people trust beauty shops. And it's not just going in, getting your haircut and going out. There is that social aspect that you're talking about, and that's where the trust comes in. And we really do want to thank you because our Myeloma Link program is going there. I mean, we're going to be right there with you, educating African-Americans and Black Americans about myeloma. Myeloma is a blood cancer, but it has twice the incidence in African-Americans than it does have in white Americans, and especially African males. And people are more likely to not get the latest treatments and not get treatment as early as their white counterparts. So just being able to talk about it, talking about what somebody might experience, because doctors aren't always looking for myeloma as the first thing. You have to rule everything out first because it's not the most common type of cancer. But at the same time, just making people their own advocates and knowing what to look for, I think is something really powerful, especially if doctors aren't looking for things. And of course, you're part of your own treatment team because you know your own body. So you know when something is wrong. So thank you for that because that's really helping LLS get to more folks, get to more people, and hopefully have people get better treatment options. Well, I am so glad to have you as a partner. And in December, before we had to all shut down, we hosted a workshop here in Maryland. And it was here was the title of the workshop, What Black Barbers and Stylists Say to Scientists. No research on us without us. And Myeloma Link was a partner and we had two African-American men uh, who were survivors of myeloma, and they talked about how they had never heard of the disease before, and now they're out being advocates and dispelling myths. And they said, we'd love to come into barbershops and educate people uh, so they're not afraid of this. And I'm thinking as we're talking right now, what an opportunity to get a buddy system where we not only bring people together because of the commonality of a common disease, but bring them together across these lines. I have an African-American myeloma patient with a buddy who's a white myeloma patient. Do those kinds of things. They bond around survivorship, but together they can address the issues of race. I think that's a great idea. I know that we're also starting our Latino outreach. You know, we're working more closely, trying to work with the Latino and Hispanic populations. We do have... um Latino children more likely of getting acute leukemias and non-Hodgkin lymphoma is the fifth most common cancer in Hispanics. So we are trying to also make sure that we are inclusive. I know the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society over the years has tried to reach out to a lot of rural populations, a lot of indigenous folks where care is really hard to obtain, especially cancer care for those folks. And of course, we have people that are undocumented that may not get, healthcare might not be as available to them. So a lot of issues. And on the science side, it's very important that these cancer clinical trials uh, are more diverse. 
And you can't do that unless you build trust with these communities. And we hold these comprehensive cancer centers accountable for diversifying their research study populations. Again, this is a moment. This moment is not just about police brutality. This is the confluence of all those things. And we in healthcare are not immune. We are not immune. And uh, there have been stories uh, in the COVID cases where African-Americans have wanted to get tested. Uh, they've been refused testing. In other words, their words weren't listened to and people have died and they think, oh, if I was white, I would have gotten a test. That may or may not be true, but they, they believe it's true. And that's what we have to prevent. That's a great point. And doctor, I think what you mentioned earlier and throughout this conversation is the importance of having the science behind what we're saying, you know, the metrics behind what we're saying, and also just having the conversation now, present day, because I know a lot of times when, when we hear African-Americans or black people and distrust, a lot of people's minds go automatically to the Tuskegee syphilis study. That study was one of the longest non-therapeutic experiments on human beings in medical history, so it carries that weight. But I think it's so important to have the conversations about what's happening present day to let everyone know, patients, caregivers, physicians, policymakers, that this is still happening. And it's happening with present day people with present day issues. Like you said, it's hopeful to know that things are changing. But I also think it's important to just mention that a lot of times we separate the past to the present and a lot of it is blended and a lot of it just needs to be discussed and addressed. They give this quote to Mark Twain, the past is not the past. Uh, the past may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so, yes, the Tuskegee, the Tuskegee Suffolk study is like the quintessential example of research abuse, 40 yeah. years, 1932 to 1972. And one might think that that's over, but it is not. Right. And so uh, this is why the training of health professionals is so important. Many uh, physicians uh, in their training have what they call simulated patients. Uh, where there's an actual, these are actors uh, that come in uh, with symptoms. Uh, they act out the symptoms and they help the doctor, you know, practice their bedside manner. At a time when we're going through right now with stay at home, uh, I think we may need to even think even more creatively about how to train uh, not only physicians but others uh, using simulators. Uh, in other words, imagine this for me. Right now, if you're an airplane pilot, you get trained in a simulator. You, you get in this thing and you fly a plane, you take off, you land as if you're in a real plane, but you're in a simulator. Uh, well, the technology now allows us to have avatar simulators uh, actually simulating a human interaction. And imagine if you could go into a simulator. Let's say you did your online cultural competence training, and now we're going to put you in a simulator and you're going to practice. Uh, interacting with an African-American patient or a Latino patient or someone who is low literate uh, or someone who's poor. And you could practice without hurting anybody. You know, you could practice without being reprimanded by your supervisor. I think we have to be much more creative about the training and push back against the health professional schools that say our curriculum's so tight, we don't have time for that. It's all about the science. Well, you're not going to get to the science if you do so in ways that are so-called colorblind. Uh, we have to make sure that the socialization of our healthcare professionals does not bake in 
the existing bias that's already in the society. And so we've been working with a group called the Merjan Corporation out in California uh, with a human simulator. And I'd love to be able to um, come back on your podcast and talk about what it means to work in a simulator as a way of addressing uh, health disparities, as a way of addressing one's own unconscious bias, and take a few young scholars with me and actually have you experience the simulator and then come back and talk about it on the podcast. Wouldn't that be awesome? awesome? That would be yes. awesome. That would be. <laughs> would the simulator be like a pass or fail? we call that one a criteria in other words you just come back as many times as you want until you get it right (laughs) for many many health professionals for example if they hear a patient talk about Tuskegee or talk about their fears and they say oh that happened so long ago they need to understand how that reads that means that you don't understand my people you don't understand what my people have gone through and if you don't understand that how can I trust you so we help health professionals become more comfortable with what we call contentious conversations. How to have those contentious conversations and still be friends, still have a relationship, actually use those contentious conversations to build trust. Definitely. Dr. T, how can we as a society address the issue of health disparities effectively? Well, I think we're doing it right now. When I reached out to your organization, they were right on board to uh, co-sponsor the uh, Black Barbershop Workshop. Um, the Black Barbers and Stylists Say to Scientists, they joined Advancing Cancer Treatment. That was our primary sponsor. So there were two cancer national organizations that sponsored uh, the workshop. So I think that's a start. I think the next thing is uh, when we've come up with a very interesting innovation in our barbershop network. It's called the Barbershop Health Box. So you millennials out there in the podcast audience, if you have an Instagram account, go search for the Barbershop Health Box, no spaces, and see what we're doing. So in the barbershop, we have a mailbox wrapped in the colors of a barber pole uh, with a pen and an index card, and the barbers or the clients can write any question down they want about health and drop it in the box. And my grad students come and pick up the mail, so to speak, And they turn those questions into infographics for low literate populations, images, pictures. And you can see some of the infographics that have been created. So Mm -hmm. while we're in the shops uh, recognizing there's a high risk for cancer in this population, sometimes you can't start there. Sometimes you start with what questions do you have? And so who would imagine somebody's going to drop in the box about acne? Uh, Somebody's going to drop in the box about erectile dysfunction. Somebody drops a question in a box about CBD and marijuana, and then somebody drops in the box a question about prostate cancer. You've got to wait till there's enough trust, meet them where they are, and then build their relationship. Can you imagine Myeloma Link having a dedicated TV channel right there in the black barbershop? That would be awesome. And that your patient population telling their story, their personal story, be they black, white, otherwise, And having those personal stories be shared in the barbershop and beauty salon could really inspire someone, could really take away the fear that people have and break down some of the myths and misperceptions. So that's what we're trying to do uh, and expand around the country. And so uh, that's a way that we would continue to work together. We will definitely get there, Dr. T. 
How about for us folks that aren't millennials and don't have an Instagram account? How can we engage? <laughs> smoke signals. Smoke signals. <laughs> well, you know, we, we've done Facebook Live. I think that should be our, one of our next things that we do together. Let's do a Facebook Live um, a Zoom uh, session like we're doing right now uh, and, and bring on the barbers, bring on the, uh, the patient population and have this conversation more broadly. I think you need to be, not see what's happening in the demonstrations as something separate from what we're about. That the health message around cancer prevention, cancer disparities, should be part of the same conversation we're having around police brutality, structural racism, institutional racism. And so we should have some signs up saying, you know, let's close the myeloma disparity gap out there along with black power and black lives matter. There are a number of ways that we can be part of this conversation and raise awareness that these issues spill over into our healthcare delivery system and be present. And what you're doing right now, I don't know what the other topics have been in your podcast, but I'm presuming that this may be one of the first where we're talking explicitly about issues of race, racism, and structural determinants of health. We should just do more of it. Absolutely. Dr. T, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you ready? Sure, sure. So on our website, we have a saying that says, after diagnosis comes hope. If you were to finish that sentence based off of your experience, what you've seen, how would you finish that? After diagnosis comes, what would be that word for you? Well, after a diagnosis comes the reality check. I think for many people, Mm. after the diagnosis, it's like, I need to take my life more seriously. I should not take things for granted that the relationships in my life are actually important. My family is important. In other words, um, they begin to face their own mortality. What they also need to know that after that reality check does come hope because cancer is no longer a death sentence. I'm old enough to remember where the word cancer was like a death sentence. And you have to understand in many minority communities, there's a belief that if you say something, you give power to that thing. So it was not uncommon for me to go into a cancer support group on an issue like breast cancer and not see any African-American women in the support group. And I was always curious about that. And we'd meet in the hospitals and and they would be all white females. And so in exploring that, I learned that, and some of this is tied up with, with faith traditions and religion, uh, the belief that if I say a thing, I give power to that thing. Other cultures say if I say that thing, I can control that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be a subtle subtle difference uh, in terms of, uh, of groups. So if you put up a sign that says cancer support group, black folk ain't going to walk through that door. So what we did is, again, reframe our whole initiative uh, that we launched. Uh, in this case, it was in the city of Pittsburgh. We called it the Healthy Black Family Project. And guess what? People showed up in droves. 8,000 people signed up. The Healthy Black Family Project. Mm-hmm. Now, guess what they came with? They came with all their burdens. They came with all their diseases. They came with their diabetes, their obesity, their cancers. But we didn't call it that. So I think some of it is a bit of reframing. The other is knowing someone who's a survivor. 
we don't talk about victims, we talk about survivorship. And I think that's one of the big values coming from the cancer world. Uh, many of the people in your podcast audience are survivors. Uh, they feel like they are in charge. They are empowered. That In some cases, the disease itself may have made them better people. I'd love to hear from them, that they love their family more. They took time to build relationships more because they recognize their own mortality. So we need to let people know that there is hope, but they don't know that if they don't know anyone who looks like them who has survived. So let's give voice and an image. When you told me about uh, myeloma and that African-American men in particular are disproportionately impacted, I would say I have never heard a black person ever say the word myeloma. How is that possible? Until I was at, at the workshop where you had two of your survivors come and tell their story. They told their story to an audience full of black barbers and stylists, and those people left inspired to tell their clients. That's how we do it. Each one, teach one, and be consistent. Absolutely. Dr. T, is there anything that you feel that we didn't cover today that you think it's important for our audience to hear? We've done work, and we're trying to figure out why are African-American women not coming back for their mammograms, or even after they have a diagnosis and treatment, not coming back for support. And we did interviews with them, and we found out that they did not believe that the cancer prevention message was for them. And we were stunned because we're talking just, you know, three, four years ago. You would think there would be nothing new to learn. And so I think we shouldn't take for granted the need for giving a face and a voice to the data that we have. And so one of the things that we've done is, again, using cultural uh, tailoring, uh, we have what's called the Underground Railroad Bicycle Route. And if you Google that, you'd find a 2,100-mile bicycle route that begins in Mobile, Alabama, and ends in Owing Sound, Canada. And so we use the Underground Railroad Black History as a way of getting people more physically active and getting them involved in the whole biking and cycling community that I did not see many African Americans participating in. And so I think using black history to connect to the very lifestyle behaviors we want people to adopt, the other is to recognize that this is a catastrophe and it should be treated as other catastrophes with an adequacy of resources. That's both the danger and the opportunity. The danger is to assume that these disparities are simply baked in and that African-Americans are simply destined to live sicker and die younger. We cannot let that happen. And the conversation we're having in our country today gives me hope that we are not going to let that happen, that we are going to turn the chapter and start a brand new one together. Well, so well said. We couldn't agree more. Dr. T, thank you so much for joining us today and for such an insightful conversation. We believe that change happens at the intersection of conversation, education, like you said, resources and accountability. And we're happy that we're able to converse with you today about such an important issue. We are hopeful that things are changing, especially with the work that you're doing. And here at LLS, we are certainly doing our job to bridge the racial gap and the impact racial and ethnic disparities have on blood cancer patients and patients overall. So thank you so much again for joining us. You give me hope. Thank you. Thank you. You give us hope. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.